This is from the True Dharma Eye, case 113. Barfu is blocking the eyes, ears, and mind. Dijang asked the monk from Barfu Monastery, How does your master teach the Buddha Dharma? The monk said, Once Master Barfu told the assembly, I cover your eyes to let you see what is not seen. I cover your ears to let you hear what is not heard. I restrain your mind to let you give up thinking. So Dijang said to the monk, let me ask you now, when I don't cover your eyes, what do you see? When I don't cover your ears, what do you hear? And when I don't cover your mind, restrain your mind, what do you discern? Upon hearing these words, the monk had realization. <clears throat> the commentary. Balfour covers the monk's eyes, ears, and mind in order to reveal that which cannot be seen, heard, or perceived. What is revealed that cannot be seen, heard, or perceived? Dijang asked, when eyes, ears, and mind are not covered, what is perceived? One pushes down, one lifts up. One stands on the summit of the great mountain and raises waves that encompasses heaven and earth. The other descends to the depth of the great ocean and raises mud and sand. Do these two adepts speak of the same thing? Or is it that they point to different things? Is Balfour's covering the eyes the same or different from Dijang's not covering? Haven't you heard? If you intend to make a living on the road, you will have to travel by day, not by night. How will you travel by day? The capping verse. If they have an eye, I cover it. If they don't have an eye, I uncover it. The jet black darkness emits light. Incredible. The whole universe is illuminated. Incredible indeed it is. So tomorrow, as you know, is the official day of commemorating the life of Martin Luther King. An amazing transformation he was able to initiate through his sheer perseverance and courage. And so in connection with the recent uprising, hatred, divisiveness, and violence, I thought it would be a good time to explore the origin of our blindness and our propensity to discriminate and disenfranchise. Martin Luther King lived in a time where racial discrimination was widely overt and acceptable by many people who actually felt justified to disenfranchise other human beings, harbor feelings of hatred, and commit horrific acts of violence against them without hesitation or remorse. And many of us may look at such dark times of our history with disbelief, maybe having difficulty comprehending how can human beings behave in such a way with one another. And we may feel that we have made great progress since then. 
which is true to some extent. But when you think about it, it only been, it's only been 54 years since the famous march from Selma to Montgomery, and only 50 years since MLK was shot. And as much as we want to believe that we have radically changed since then, the reality of our times is telling a very different story. On some level, it is true that as a society, we have come a long way since then, and we have learned to be more aware of the destructive forces of our biases, and maybe we have become a little bit more tolerant and accepting of each other. But the last four years and the recent uprising violence is showing that while overtly things may have changed, our biases as society didn't go anywhere. They just moved to the underground and manifested implicitly only to wait for the opportune time to manifest explicitly again. Acts of hatred and discrimination are, discrimination are symptoms to a disease that lies deep within us. And so changing the way we act does not automatically shed light on the root causes of our actions. And often the disease will find a different way to manifest. It's kind of like having a physical disease that manifests as a skin rash. You can put ointment on it, the rash may disappear, and you may think that it's gone but it is moving behind and then it will show up. It's only suppressed for the time being and it will show up again later in a different way or the same way in another part of the body as it is with us, the body of humanity. As we witness with the resurgence of white supremacism and nationalism, and MLK knew that very well, and one of his quotes, he said, everything that we see is a shadow cast by that which we cannot see. Everything that we see is a shadow cast by that which we cannot see. It is only a manifestation of something very deep within all of us. The hatred and discrimination that lies in the heart manifest in words and actions, suppressing words and actions do not address the hatred and discrimination in the heart. And so, as practitioners, we have to be willing to look beyond what the eye can see and work with our tendencies at the root level, the underground, the unseen, to see beyond the impulsive interpretations that arise in the mind when the eye sees an appearance, or when the ear encounters a sound. This is where some practice of not knowing can be very beneficial. I think I know what I see, but do I really know what I see? Do I really know what I hear? Is what my mind's saying enough to verify? You know, seeing the mobs at the, at the Capitol violently smashing windows, desecrating property, beating the guards, brought up intense feelings of repulse in, in many, many of us in this country and around the world. We're all watching it with disbelief. 
And while it is understandable to feel this way, we have to be aware of the arising emotions as they can quickly turn into the same energies that propelled the violence at the capital. Or in other words, to hate those who express hatred or discriminate against those who discriminate is only adding wood to the fire we're trying to extinguish. Again, whether it's overtly or not, still, it, is causing the, it can cause the same harm. So 50 years after MLK was shot for standing against racial discrimination, we find ourselves in times that on one level give rise to acceptance and equality, and on another level give rise to what MLK had the courage to shine light on. And as always, there is a fork on the road, and what happens next depends on how we meet this moment. If we want to address the disease, we need to go beyond the immediate associations and interpretations that arise in us when we see, hear, smell, touch, taste, and think. It means to get in touch with the way discrimination is born at the moment our senses come in contact with something or someone. And what happens when our senses are cut off? How can we see without the eye? How can we hear without the ear? Or think without the mind? In this koan, Dijang asked the monk from Baofu Monastery, how does your master teach the Buddha Dharma? It was common at that time for monks to travel and encounter different teachers, and the teacher would ask, where did you come from? From the monastery of so-and-so, how does your teacher teach the Buddha Dharma? It's not so much about how does your teacher teach it, it's more about how do you understand the words of your teacher? So the monk answered with an example of one of, from one of the masters Barfu's talk, right, in which he said to his students, I cover your eyes to let you see what is not seen. I cover your ears to let you hear what is not heard. I restrain your mind to let you give up thinking. So depriving our senses can be a very effective way to raise the great doubt and to initiate inner transformation. But how exactly is Balfour doing that? How can he restrain? How can he cover the eyes and ears? Well, simply by instructing his students how to practice Zazen correctly, by teaching them to not believe the passing thoughts and opinions that appear in their minds, by giving them mood to work with, and by supporting and encouraging them when the ground seems to shake under their feet when they lose what they come, we have come to trust or rely on. And by guiding them to turn away from the automatic process of labeling, judging, quantifying through sights, sounds, and mental formations. In the fire sermon, the Buddha spoke about the senses being on fire 
And he said, the eye is burning with sights. The tongue is burning with flavors. The nose is burning with aromas. The body is burning with tactile sensations. And the mind is burning with thought formations. In this sermon, he explained that at the moment our senses come in contact with reality, we are confined to and burned by the automatic way it is interpreted by our mind. The mind being the governing sense organ, the other five senses are the doors of our perception through which impressions come in. And then the mind takes it, organizes it, spits out some kind of a conclusion by which we speak and act. And so, Buddha is urging us, his followers and us, to learn to become less obsessed with our senses or with the interpretations of what comes through our senses. Which is another way of saying that before we can expand our views and be more inclusive, we need to disengage from our discriminating consciousness that keeps us trapped in appearing in a small sphere of me and my imagined boundaries I need to protect. Me and the small sphere of my boundaries. MLK said, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to a broader concerns of all humanity. Is that different? The truth is the truth. Whether it was 2,000, 3,000 years ago, or yesterday, or right now. How can it change? Everything changes. The truth shines forth. We cover it, we uncover it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't stop shining. We can pretend there is another truth. We can live an entire lifetime based on an idea of it. We can do that. Nevertheless, the truth does not stop shining And this morning, I asked us, you, all of us, to allow the ground to support you. It's that same truth. To relax into it. To rest in who you are. And that means resting in the you before you. Which is actually none other than resting in Prajna. What is Prajna? Of course, we say wisdom. But the word itself is not just wisdom. The word itself consists of two words, pla and jna. Jna is wisdom. Pla is before. This is not accumulated wisdom. This is the wisdom at birth. The wisdom of being. The you before you. Before the eye sees before the mind creates interpretations, before we go with those interpretations, before, period. How do we rest in before? 
As long as the chatter in our minds takes the bulk of our attention, we are unable to truly see and truly hear each other. As long as we are obsessed with ourselves and our mental formations, we become blind and unable to avoid causing harm. And often unable to react to other causing harm, other people causing harm, by ourselves, following that by causing harm. Through thought, through words, through actions. Once a Brahmin asked the Buddha to explain why do people fight with each other? It's a very, very relevant question. Unfortunately, we can ask the same question now, today. Why do we keep fighting each other? The Buddha said, it is, Brahmin, because of attachments to views, adherence to views, fixations of, on views, addiction to views, addiction to self, obsession with views, holding firm, firmly to views. On another occasion, the Buddha was asked, why do people live with hate? And he said, Beings wish to live without hate, harming, hostility, or enmity. They wish to live in peace. Yet, they live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and as enemies. By what fetters are they bound that they live in such a way? Again, extremely relevant to us today. And the Buddha said, It is the bonds of envy and stinginess that bind beings so that although they wish to live without hate, hostility, or enmity, and to live in peace, yet they live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and as enemies. It says that the questionnaire was delighted by the answer, but wanted to go deeper, and so he asked further. But sir, what gives rise to envy and stinginess? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they rise? When they arise, what is present? And when they do not arise, what is absent? Very thorough guy. The Buddha said, Envy and stinginess arise from liking and disliking. This is their origin. This is how they are born. How they arise. When these are present, they arise. When these are absent, they do not arise. So the guy kept going. But sir, what gives rise to liking and disliking? They arise from desire. And what gives rise to desire? It arises from thinking. When the mind thinks about something, desire arises. When the mind thinks of nothing, desire does not arise. But sir, what gives rise to thinking? Thinking arises from elaborated perception and notion. When elaborate perceptions and notions are present, thinking arises. When elaborated perceptions and notions are, not, are absent, not present, thinking does not arise. Very simple. Elaborated perceptions and notions. And what the Buddha is saying is that at the root of all afflictions and conflicts lies a perception of reality 
which is no more than a personal interpretation created by the six gates of our perception, our senses. And we may regard the mob who violently desecrated the capital as a bunch of crazy people who don't care about human lives or democracy, and it seems like a logical conclusion. But taking what we just heard into account, we also need to take into consideration that they actually truly believe that the election was stolen and they perceived their actions as necessary means to reclaim their country and defend democracy. So they're not a bunch of lunatics released from a mental institution. They are like us. They actually believe that they need to do this in order to protect democracy. And one of them who is in jail now is asking the president for clemency, right? And it makes sense. He said, well, I just followed his guidelines. I went along with what he said. Because I trusted him. Because I did what I did in order to protect democracy. And the falsehood they have been fed consistently over a long period of time acted as the catalyst for creating elaborated perceptions in their minds. When that which is false becomes solidified in the mind, the facts no longer matter and the truth becomes the enemy. In fact, the truth becomes the false. The facts we become suspicious to the facts. Before the riots began, there were a bunch of reporters walking around asking people, why are they there? And one of them said very clearly that nobody can convince her that Biden got more votes than Trump. There's no way you can convince me of that. Period. That's how firmly the elaborated perceptions in our mind become. Not just in their minds, in our minds as well. It's not other people. Or we are other people. We act in many ways. That's one of the ways we act. This absolute way of thinking fueled the mobs and made them feel completely justified to do what they did. So looking at this from the perspective of our practice, it is essential that we recognize the formation of our own elaborated perceptions that begin to arise as soon as we see and hear people who are acting in such harmful and hurtful ways. And to bear witness to our arising perceptions and not to allow, so to allow them to wither to know how to bear witness to the arising perceptions and to allow them to wither without giving them access to our mouth, to our hands, to our legs. If we don't allow space for our perceptions to subside, or time for them to subside, we may end up responding to anger and hatred with anger and hatred and fortify the divide. We have so much more in common than we can ever imagine or think. But in order to see that, to experience that, we have to get beyond thought 
and to realize it since it is operating underground it is not so easy to see well it is easy but the the easier what comes easy to us is holding on to perceptions that is easy and that's why we feel justified to say what we say to do what we do so how do we see how do we access where the conventional eyes and ears cannot reach how do we go beyond interpretations that's why Baofu said I cover your eyes I cover your eyes to let you see what is not seen through your eyes I cover your ears to let you hear what you are unable to hear I restrain your mind to let you give up thinking It's very important to understand what that means that there is another way to see hear and think now Balfu of course cannot do any of it to us and even if he could it will only create resistance and will not lead to any realization if somebody actually will cover your eyes is that gonna work or cover your ears or if you cover your ears and eyes this is just a, all he's doing is giving us a compassionate advice for each of us to actually diligently practice zazen and use not waste the time use the time on the cushion to learn to not go along with the interpretations of what we see hear and think and not to ruminate endlessly even when it is so tempting to indulge in constant thinking and it is tempting especially during zazen because we're not engaged in anything nothing is there to distract us from thinking and the advice of course is not limited to the times we meditate during zazen we hone the ability to keep turning the attention back to the pristine beauty of this moment naked moment as is which includes everything and everybody and then when zazen period ends we keep practicing the same thing on the go we keep returning to the inclusive beauty of this moment while the eye ear and mind keep triggering the formation of intricate perceptions that's not gonna stop and actually doesn't need to stop we need to learn to not be so obsessed with ourselves you know, if we want to mitigate our tendency to to check out and ruminate whether in zazen or everyday activities we need to begin every day brand new every day with resolve and purpose renewed resolve and purpose every morning as soon as we wake up as soon as we open our eyes brand new and then have the discipline to maintain it by continuously turning to the aliveness of the body and the breath how else are we going to connect with this what will not in us what will not be obsessed with interpretations and formation mental formations 
the aliveness of the body is a direct link to the truth, to who we are. The aliveness of the body of a newborn baby coming out of the womb, at that moment, that is the aliveness we're talking about. Knowing nothing about anything, that's what we need to do. Direct link. So to turn to the aliveness of the body that will remind us what we are, where we come from, where we're going, every moment, every waking moment. There is such an incredible energy all around us and we are often unaware of it because so much of our attention is taken up by mental activity which is mostly, mostly repetitive and irrelevant to the need of the moment. And being so immersed in mental activity which is detached from what is actually happening around us, how can we avoid doing harm? How can we actualize goodness? How can we be of service to others? See how the sun just came out? Shining light on what we need to see. Referring to our six senses, an old master said, what comes through the front gate is not the family treasure. What comes in through the front gate is not the family treasure. What we see, hear, or think is stirring up the discriminating consciousness and can take our attention away from realizing unity and equanimity. This is considered the family treasure of the Zen tradition, but of course it's none other than our inherent treasure or the inherent treasure of every human being. And so since this is an inherent treasure, how do we become blind to it when our senses are not blocked? That's what Dijang is asking the monk and us to examine. He says, when I don't cover your eyes. So he heard what this monk said. And what he wanted to know is whether or not this monk actually knows how to live it rather than quote it. Here's what my teacher is saying. Great. What about you? Or what happens when that advice is flipped? When I don't cover your eyes, what do you see? When I don't cover your ears, what do you hear? When I don't restrain your mind, what do you discern? So during Zazen, we train the mind, we train ourselves to not follow sights, sounds. And while thoughts come and go, we practice stillness of mind by maintaining one-pointed concentration. But what happens when Zazen ends and the eyes and ears encounter form and sound and the mind is stirred up by the multitude of appearances? <clears throat> the appearances of our thoughts by themselves 
are not the cause of our harmful behavior. And so whether or not we become blind by what we see, hear, or think, this has to do with more with maintaining a sense of inner stillness in the midst of movement. In other words, we may be able to do that on the cushion. The question is, what happens when Zazen ends and we are no longer or feel supported by that sense of stillness? What happens when movement and stillness mix or when stillness encounters movement? <clears throat> you know, in, in Aikido, uh, we have a practice called Randori uh, that you are attacked by few people. And in that, there's constant movement. And the person who's being attacked by four or five people has to, of course, constantly keep moving. And there's something very interesting in that. There is, a, there is an, what we call energized and stable center throughout the movement, but it is in constant motion. So it is stable, energized, and fixed, and still, but not fixed to any one position. And it is energized because the attention is there, and the, actually the attention comes out of there and shows up in the way, in the meeting, the, the instant of meeting and attack. So the way it looks like is you, you basically dance for a split second with one person at a time. And it is a dance. You encounter someone, you encounter an attack, you dance with it for a split second, and then you completely let it go and move on to the next one. Taking nothing with you, completely being present, completely in the moment. One thought, one thought that is grasped at that moment and everything collapses. Everything will automatically, immediately collapse. One thought, that's all it takes. Not one thought arising, one thought grasped. I'm doing well, it ends. I'm not doing so well, it ends. Any thought that separates between you and the other person, everything will collapse immediately. And it's the same thing. This is what we're asked to do in everyday life. Something changes. Well, everything changes all the time. But something changes. And then likes and dislikes arise in the mind. I like it. I don't like it. It's not supposed to be this way. It's supposed to be something else. Everything collapses. But if we meet that moment from the original, from birth, or from a state of being born at that moment, how could it be otherwise? Where is the gap for saying it should be otherwise? There is nothing else. There is no one else. It's just that moment. And in that moment, Everybody and everything is embraced. Because there is no gap, because there's nothing outside of it. It's another way to realize unity in the middle of moment-by-moment moment change. So we need to do the same. We need to be in a state of perpetual alignment with the way things are. 
And when we think about this, you know, perpetual alignment with the way things are, it's easy to see how mental formations are, have nothing to do with the way things are. It's kind of scary to think that most of our life we spend in our heads. Most of our life we spend looking back rather than looking at this. The capping verse. If they have an eye, I cover it. If they don't have an eye, I uncover it. The jet black darkness emits light. Incredible. The whole universe is illuminated. Now, if we don't have an understanding, then blocking the eye won't do, and uncovering the eye won't do either. We can verify unity by blocking the eyes. We can also verify unity by opening the eyes. And equally, we can get stuck by opening the eyes or closing the eyes. We can turn inwardly and encounter thought after thought after thought. Right? And get bogged down by that. We open the eyes and we encounter many things we may not like. We may be paralyzed by, or think, or feel paralyzed by. That will be a trap also. That's why it says in the verse, if you have an eye, I will cover it. If you don't have an eye, I will uncover it. It has everything to do with where we are at, at any given moment. Sometimes covering the eyes is the right thing to do. Sometimes uncovering the eye is the right thing to do. It's just upaya. Because essentially there is no in and there is no out. Commentary. The last line says, Haven't you heard? If you intend to make a living on the road, you will, tra you will have to travel by day, not by night. How will you travel by day? Or in other words, how will you actualize the fundamental point? We can't run back into our zazen again and again and look for solace because things change. Things change. It's just the nature of things. People cause harm to other people. It's the way it is. Seems like it's the way it is for the time being. How do we meet that? How do we travel by day? How do we embrace what we want to reject? Or maybe, better yet, how do we embrace those who we want, who we, who we feel justified to reject? MLK said, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or perish together as fools. 54 years ago, how fitting it is, right? How sadly that it is so fitting still right now. So we can live together as one or keep 
fighting each other and perish together as fools. If you watch the documentary, White Right, which was featured in the workshop, the, the deep listening workshop, you may remember that towards the end, one of the guys who was reformed, he was a white supremacist and he realized the harm he was causing and he changed his ways. And he said something very profound. He said, it is easier to hate than to admit that you're afraid you will not be loved. It is easier to hate than to admit that I'm afraid that I will not be loved, that I'm afraid that I will not be embraced by everybody. We all, one with all things already. We don't know it. That's where fear arises from, because we don't know it. And this is our practice, to rest in who we are. When we rest in who we are, everybody is there, everybody is included. It is nothing but love. And it's a different kind of love. It's actually love that allows for hatred as well. Meaning it allows for people hurting each other. It allows us to love those who hate, those who hurt, those who act in such ways. So you remember from this morning I quoted from Fukanza Zengi, you are already it. This is already what we are looking for. But as soon as one thought arises, as soon as the mind moves, we are separated. We are as if separated. And it's not that we have to restrain the mind as much as realize that we don't have to follow the mind. And all of it comes down to learning to rest here, now, Every step, every breath, this is it. You are the one. Please, go no further. Thank you.